How many are grateful for God's grace? God's unmerited, undeserved favor. If we got what we deserve, we'd all be in trouble. But because of his grace, he's brought us salvation and eternal life and forgiveness. Turn your Bibles again to Matthew. I'm sorry, Matthew. Romans. Romans chapter 5, please. Romans chapter 5. Our theme for the new year, taken from 2 Peter 3.18, is but grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the next, today and the next several weeks, I'm going to do a serious message on grace. And today I'd like to talk about God's marvelous grace, God's marvelous grace. I'm going to begin with, uh, we're going to look at it called appreciating God's grace. Paul helps us, uh, people appreciate God's grace through contrasting truths. He presents several things that contrast each other and to present the grace of God. He talks about God's abundant grace and God's abounding grace in this passage. But let's begin talking about appreciating God's grace. Notice, first of all, we have a contrast between death and life. Between death and life in verse 17. Helps us appreciate God's grace. We understand these contrasts between each other. In verse 17, for if, when, said, if by one man's offense, death reigned by one. Now, who's the one man's offense that brought death? It was, of course, it was Adam. But it goes on to say, much more they which receive the abundance of grace. There's that word, abundance of grace. And the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. So death reigns by the offense of one by Adam. Back up, if you would please, in chapter 5. Look in verse 12, please. Chapter 5, verse 12, talking about sin and death, where it originated. In verse 12, it says, Wherefore, as by one man, that one man again is Adam, sin entered into the world, and death by sin. So death passed upon all men, for all have what? Each and every one of us, according to the Bible, are sinners. We're sinners one of three ways, all three ways. First of all, by birth. David said, in sin did my mother conceive me, and Nick was, was I shapen. We're all born sinners. Uh, many years ago, a lady, after the service, I mentioned this phrase, we're all born sinners. She was a brand new mother, has a child eight weeks old in the nursery, her first child. And she, after the service, came to me, Pastor, I appreciate your message, but how dare you tell me my baby boy's a sinner? And I thought to myself, give him time. <laughs> You'll find out very quickly that little boy's a sinner. We're all sinners by birth, but also we're sinners by nature. We're born with a bent on doing wrong. David said, I'm sorry, Paul said, I know that is in me that is in my flesh dwelleth how much good. No good. We're all born with sin and sin. We're born with a sinful nature, and we're also sinners by choice. If we're honest, we all have to agree that sometime in life we've chose to do wrong. We chose to sin. The Bible said, for the transgression of the law is sin. We've transgressed God's laws. We've sinned. We're sinners by birth. And therefore, with sin come death. Death reigns by the offense of one. But it goes on to say, and life reigns by the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness of one. Who's that one? Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, it says, For as in Adam we all die, but in Jesus Christ shall all be made what? 
alive. How many grateful for Jesus Christ? We're all made alive in Christ. So the first contrast there to appreciate grace is death and life. The second contrast, verse 18, is condemnation and justification. Condemnation and justification mentioned there, verse 18. It says, therefore, as by the offense of one, again, Adam, came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification and life. So sin of Adam brought judgment and condemnation. But the righteousness of Christ brought the gift of salvation and justification. Number three, the third contrast, appreciate the grace of God. First was death and life, condemnation, justification. Number three is disobedience and obedience. Disobedience and obedience. Verse 19. Again, referring to Adam, he says, For by one man's disobedience, many were made what? When Adam sinned, he plunged the whole human race into sin. All the descendants of Adam inherited sinful nature were all sinners by his disobedience. But it goes on to say, But by the obedience of one, who was that? Jesus Christ. Many are made righteous. How are we made righteous? How is a sinner who's offended, broken God's laws, made righteous before him? I'm glad you asked. Turn your Bibles, please. Keep your finger there. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, please. Page 1628, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The disobedience of Adam, many were made sinners, but the obedience of Christ, many were made righteous. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. You're going to see that phrase again, made righteous. The vilest sinner who puts his faith, his dependence, his trust in Christ for salvation is made righteous in the eyes of God. He's justified, declared righteous. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. You're going to see two personal pronouns. One refers to God the Father. The other refers to God the Son. But it says in verse 21, for he... The Father hath made him, the Son, to be what? Sin for us. Look up here, please. When did God make his Son to be sin for us? On the cross. Peter said he bore our sin, his own body, on the tree. When he hung on the cross, there burying our sin and shame, God the Father made him to be sin for us. Who knew no sin? Look up here, please. The illustration I want to share with you. Let this hand represent everyone here, and let this piece of paper, all the writing, represent our sin. We're all sinners, are we not? We all inherit our sin nature from Adam. We all sin by choice, by nature, and by birth. But Jesus Christ is righteous. He knew no sin. On the cross, God the Father took our sin and made him to be sin for us. And when we trust him as our Savior, we are made the righteousness of God in him. He, we are declared righteous. Romans 4, 5 says that by faith, we're uh, declared righteous. And when you put your faith in Christ as Savior, God sees you as though if you never sinned and makes you righteous in his eyes. That's what grace does for us. It talks about God's abundant grace. Now look at God's abounding grace. Look in verse 20, please, of Romans. Back to Romans chapter 5. Here we have another contrast, a contrast of law and grace. And here is one of my favorite verses in the Bible I love so much. 
Romans 5.20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might what? Paul said, I would not have known sin apart from the law. You want to find out if you're a sinner, go read the law of God. And you'll see very quickly that you have broken his laws, that you're a sinner for the transgression of the law is sin. We all have sin. But it goes on to say, more of the law entered that the offense might abound. But read on. But where sin abounded, hallelujah, grace did much more abound. God's law was given that man's offense might abound. But where sin abounded, God's grace did much more abound. Notice there's two words abound here. It says, by the law, offense might abound. The word abound there means exist in abundance. But it says, when sin abound, grace did much more abound. That means abound beyond measure. Superbound, overflow. You know what that means? We sang in a song, God's grace is greater than all our sin. Some time ago, I was witness to a man. The whole time I was witness to him, his head was down. Wouldn't even look at me. He was listening. He said, Pastor, I understand that I indeed want to go to heaven. I want to be forgiven, but Pastor... You don't know what I've done. God can't save me. My life is full of sin. And I took him to this verse here. I said, you say your sins abounded? Oh, much, Pastor. Read on. Where sin abounded, God's grace, what? Did much more abound. You may be here today and you think you've sinned too greatly. God cannot save you. My friend, your sin may be great, but God's grace is greater. And it gives us an example of that. Go with me now, if we're pleased, to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Here I have an example of God's abundant or abounding grace. Page 1668. Keep your finger in Romans coming back to that. Here's a man. He used his own life as an example of being a sinner and how God saved him. His name was Paul, the Apostle Paul. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. Look for the term abundant grace here. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. Here Paul speaks of himself. Again, page 1668, for those using a church Bible, the example of God's abundant grace. Paul said, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the what? Ministry. But notice verse 13, he speaks of his past life. Who was before a blasphemer, a persecutor, and injurious, which means before he was saved, you know what Paul did? Quoting scripture, he made havoc of the church. He slaughtered Christians. He went from house to house, arresting them, taking them to prison, putting them to death. That's what Paul did. I asked that man who thought he was too great a sinner that God could save him. I said, have you ever killed Christians? Have you ever slaughtered God's people? Paul did. And yet Paul goes on to say, who was before a blasphemer, look down in verse 14. He said, and the grace of our Lord was what? Exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. Verse 15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners of whom I am what? My friend, you may be an extremely terrible sinner, which we all are. My friend, Paul was worse. Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the worst of all of them. And he said, God's grace and his salvation was exceedingly abundant. In fact, look in verse 16. How be it for this cause? 
I obtain mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a what? Pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to everlasting life. Paul said, if God can save me, he can save anybody. That my salvation is a pattern that God can save the worst of sinners. This is the faithful saying where they have all acceptation. Christ came and Jesus came to the Lord to save sinners. And Paul said, I'm the worst of all of them. In my life, God's grace was abundant. And to the extent he saved me as an example, that if he can save me, he can save anybody. What an example of God's abundant grace. I don't know about you, I appreciate God's grace, don't you? His abundant grace, abounding grace. Number two, now from appreciating God's grace, talk about misunderstanding God's grace. Go back to Romans, please. Back to Romans. This time in chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. When you find that, look over here, please. Let me explain to you something about the Bible. The Bible originally was not written in chapters and verses. It was a letter. This is a letter written by Paul. And chapter 6, verse 1, carries on what chapter 5 was saying. And notice what he said. He begins with distorted reasoning. He begins with distorted reasoning. Talking about misunderstanding God's grace. Verse 1 of chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may what? Abound. In other words, some may reason that since grace increases all the more, when sin abounds, then believers ought to sin more, they might experience more grace. That's, what, that's a distorted reasoning. Sin abounds, God's grace does much more abound. So if I want more grace, I need to increase my sin. That's distorted thinking. And it says such reasoning should be rejected, what Paul says. He goes on to say, Paul's response, verse 2, he says, God, what? Forbid. The word forbid expresses absolute denial. Paul's saying it's unthinkable and out of the question. And no way is the abundance of God's grace designed to encourage sin. In no way is the abundance of God's grace designed to encourage sin. This type of reasoning that I should continue in sin that grace may abound is unreasonable, distorted reasoning, but it's reason that contradicts powerful truth. It's reasoning that contradicts powerful truth. Paul then explained a fact. First of all, write down, Christians are dead to sin. Christians are dead to sin. Look at me, please. Last Sunday, we looked at the book of Hebrews, and Hebrews divided grace into two categories. Not grace, God's word. Defined it two ways. He referred to it as the milk of the word. Remember that? But also the what? Meat of the word. The milk, Paul described it as the first principles of the oracles of God. The milk is the basic truths, the elementary truths of God's word. And the Bible says that we grow thereby the milk of the word. But he talked about also, the meat of the word. The meat are the deep things of God's word, the more difficult things of God's word. Now, look over here, please. We're moving now from the milk to the meat. And what I'm going to share with you can be hard to comprehend, hard to understand. So I want to encourage you to read this chapter over and over again this week. But the Bible says, God, he said, God forbid, how shall that we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? What does it mean to be dead to sins? A pastor's sin's not dead in my life. <laughs> what does it mean to be dead to sin? Read on verse 3. Know ye not that so many of us were baptized into Jesus, were baptized into his death? Verse 4. 
Therefore we are buried with him by the baptism into his death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Here he talks about baptism. It's not water baptism. The water baptism pictures this wonderful truth. He's talking about spiritual baptism. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for we're all baptized, we're all by one spirit are baptized into one body. All Christians, by place and faith in Christ, have been spiritually baptized, immersed into the person of Christ that is united and identified with him. Because we are in Christ. When he died in our place, we're counted dead with him. Look away, please. This is a spiritual truth, true of every believer. When you trust in Christ as Savior, because you are baptized into Christ, identified with him, in God's eyes, when he died, you died. When he was buried, you were buried. And when he rose from the dead, you were raised from the dead to walk. Walk in newness of life. That's true of every Christian. And so, look in Romans chapter 6, in verse 10, please. Romans 6, verse 10. Talk about we are dead to sin. Verse 10. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in the he liveth, he liveth unto God. Verse 11. Likewise, Christian, reckon ye, ye also yourselves to be what? Dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies, that ye should obey as lesser thereof. The word dead there is in the past tense, aorist tense, which means that one time happened, occurred, when, occurred one time in the past. That's salvation. When in salvation, you died to sin. And the word death there talks about being died to the power of sin. Listen carefully, please. As a Christian, when you sin, you sin not because you have to. You sin because you choose to. Sin's power died at the cross. I'm no longer under the power of sin. Therefore, I'm dead to sin. Dead to sin is a separation from sin's power, not its presence, in a sense. The word dead here talks about death means, death means separation. Separation from sin's power, not the annihilation of sin, though, is very prevalent. Though it's tempting, it is not, has no more power over you as a Christian. And he says, therefore, reckon that to be true in your life. As a Christian, when you're tempted, remind yourself, I am dead to this power. Sin no longer has power over me, only that which I let it. And therefore, you can choose to obey or choose to disobey. It's a choice now. But you've been uh, died to sin. Being dead to sin means being set free from sin. Being dead to sin means being set free from sin. Look in verse 17, please. Romans 6, 17. It said, But God be thanked that ye were servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that former doctrine which delivered you. What doctrine delivered you that you obeyed? The gospel. The gospel of trust in Christ as Savior. When you believe the gospel, you were delivered, you were saved, delivered. Verse 18, being ma then made free from sin, became the servants of righteousness. Then he says, verse 19, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. As you have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity and iniquity, even so now yield your members' servants 
to righteousness and holiness. What he's saying here, before you were saved, how you, gave, you yielded yourself to temptation and sin, now that you're saved, you don't have to do that anymore. You have a choice. You can no longer yield yourself to the flesh, you can yield yourself to the spirit. Yield yourself to righteousness and holiness. That's because you're dead to the power of sin. Romans 6, 22. But now being made free from sin, free from the power of sin, are become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end of everlasting life. The distorted reasoning, because of God's grace, ought to continue to live in sin, my friend, that's distorted. But listen carefully, please. This distorted reasoning leads to depraved practice. This distorted reasoning leads to depraved practice. Go with me now to the book of Jude. The book of Jude. Say, where is that at, Pastor? It's a little small one-chapter book right before Revelation, page 1720. This is thinking, why should not go ahead and sin that grace may abound? That distorted reasoning leads to depraved practice. Jude, when's the last time you read the book of Jude, by the way? Probably been a while. <laughs> little small book of great, powerful truths. Jude, again, one chapter, verse 4. Look what it says. This distorted reasoning, Paul objected, rejected, can lead to depraved practice. Look in Jude 1, verse 4. He says, For there are certain men, crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, read on, turning the grace of our God into what? Lasciviousness. In other words, he's saying that there are certain men that come in secretly. They don't announce their coming. They do it stealthily, unaware. And it says, who before of old ordained to this combination, basically, their judgment was and combination was pre-written and foretold in the Old Testament. And it says, turning means change or alter God's wonderful grace into lasciviousness. What that means, they turn grace into a license to sin. They interpret, number one, they interpret God's grace as a license to do what their flesh desired with no inhibitions. They interpret God's grace as a license to do what their flesh desired with no inhibitions. They turn grace into licentiousness, a freedom, a license to sin. That is what depraved reasoning, I mean, distorted reasoning leads to, depraved practice. And by the way, let me give you a big word. hope you write it down. This is what is called antinomianism. Antinomianism. You see it up on the screen there. Write it down. Let me explain what that is. The word antinomianism comes from two Greek words. Anti means against. Nomos means the law. Antinomianism means against the law. Theologically, it is a belief that there is no moral laws which God expects Christians, Christians to obey. Antinomianism takes a biblical teaching to an unbiblical conclusion. The biblical teaching is that a Christian is not required to observe the Old Testament law as a means of salvation. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he fulfilled the Old Testament law. The unbiblical conclusion is that there's no moral laws and rules by which God expects Christians to obey. 
You can go live as you please. My friend, that's antinomianism. Paul dwelt, or dealt with that when he said, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? See, the most common attack on the doctrine of grace by faith alone, they say it leads to loose living. If you tell someone, listen, my friend, you're saved by grace through faith alone, and your works have no part in bringing that about, they may think, my works don't save me, then why should I do good works? It leads to loose living. That's what they, they think. Understanding salvation and God's amazing grace should lead, lead to a greater desire to obey, not a less. God's desire is, and our desire should be not to sin. Our gratitude for his grace and forgiveness should seek to, we should, should, out of that, we should seek to please him. God, by his grace, has given us a free gift of salvation. Our response should be to consecrate our lives out of love and worship and gratitude to serve him. Let me lose myself. I'm like you. I was born a sinner. I <laughs> that is right. <laughs> and by the way, that's true of you. That's right. We're all sinners. And the Bible says, because we sin, what's the penalty? The wages of sin and death. So I've sinned against God, and I owe God a penalty. And if I pay it, I have to go to hell to do it. But God... In his mercy and grace, said, David, I don't want you to pay for your sin. I don't want you to go to hell. I'll provide a substitute. You know what God did? God sent his son to pay the debt for me. Jesus Christ came to this earth. One who knew no sin became sin for me. And there on the cross, buried my sin and shame. He died for me, paid my sin debt, was buried and rose again. And when I received Christ as my Savior, you know what he did? He forgave me. He gave me eternal life. Heaven's now my home. I've been declared righteous in his sight. My friend, that doesn't make me want to sin. That motivates me to serve. And it makes me want to live for him because of all that he's done for me. It's like Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then all did, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him that died for them and rose again. My friend, grace is not a license to sin. It's a motivation to serve. It motivates the child of God to live for Christ. So antinomianism is unbiblical in that it misapplies the meaning of God's gracious favor. Remember Titus chapter 2, verse 11, we looked at last week. It said, The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly and godly, righteously and godly in this present world. That's what grace does. So this distorted reasoning that if grace abounds and my sin abounds, let's keep on sinning, leads to depraved behavior, but also next, it's also associated with perverted doctrine. It's also associated with per perverted doctrine. Go back to Jude, please, if you're still there. Jude chapter 4, chapter 1, verse 4, excuse me. The latter part of it said, turning the grace of God into lasciviousness, but read on, and denying the only Lord God 
and our Lord Jesus Christ. This distorted reasoning that I ought to keep on sinning that grace may abound leads to depraved practice, a license to sin, and the depraved practice associated with the perverted doctrine. They deny the only Lord God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The word denying means rejecting, refusing. This depraved, number one, this depraved practice was accompanied with, by a perversion in doctrine, a denial of the person and authority of Jesus Christ. When a Christian takes on that practice, they are denying the person of Jesus Christ and his authority over their lives. Notice there's two Greek words for the word Lord here mentioned, denying the only Lord God. That's the first one, Lord God. The word Lord God there talks about sovereign, absolute ruler. It speaks of his position. But it goes on to say, denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. That's another word. That word refers to owner, one who has control. So these ungodly men rejected God as sovereign Lord and refused to recognize his authority over their lives. And that's what uh, the distorted reasoning and perverted practice leads to associated with perverted doctrine. Now, number three, and we'll wrap it up with this. Are you back in Romans now? We're talking about appreciating God's grace. How many appreciate God's grace? Then we talk about misunderstanding God's grace. If you misunderstand it, you can justify all kinds of loose living. But it should not motivate loose living. It should motivate holy and righteous living. But number three, the reigning of God's grace. The reigning of God's grace. Look in chapter 5, verse 21, please. Romans 5, 21. It said that as sin hath reigned unto death, read on, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. The word reign there means to rule, govern, and control. Now, in your decision, what I live in sin, that I might receive more grace, or I want to live how God's grace motivates me to live, first of all, letter A, when sin governs, rules, or reigns in your life, here's what it brings. Remember this next time you've attempted. It brings death, judgment, condemnation, and damnation. When sin reigns or governs or rules, and according to our scripture, it brings death, it brings judgment, condemnation, and damnation. Why should you choose to sin? But when grace reigns, let her be. When grace reigns or rules or governs your life, it brings life, righteousness, salvation, justification, redemption, and forgiveness. Give a few moments, write that down. When grace reigns, when grace governs or rules our life, it brings life, righteousness, salvation, justification, and we'll show you in the next redemption and forgiveness. Even as a believer, when you sin, you'll never be condemned for that sin. But God does chastise us. And according to James, you know, when sin is finished, it brings forth death. The worst case of God's chastisement is he takes a Christian home early, physical death. So when you're tempted to sin, think about that. If sin as a believer controls my life, it will bring death and judgment of God upon me. But if grace rules and reigns, it brings life, righteousness, salvation, and justification, redemption, forgiveness. Which one do you want? 
To me, that's a no-brainer, is it not? I want God's grace. We're going to close with one verse. We're talking about the latter part. When grace reigns, it brings redemption, forgiveness. Look at this verse. I believe it's on the screen. Ephesians 1, 7. Look what it says. In whom, talking about in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the what? The riches of his grace. Look over here, please, as we close. This morning, I'm trying to help us to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can grow in grace by appreciating grace, what it did for us. We can grow in grace by not misunderstanding God's grace as a way to lead to loose living. Or we can grow in grace by allowing it to reign in our lives to bring forth life and righteousness and, and his blessings. But look at here, please. An illustration I want to share with you that when I first understood it, it helped me understand God's grace for me. Let this hand represent everyone here today. And I want to let this piece of paper again represent our sin, in which our lives, uh, we all have sinned. So here we are, here's our sin. We all have sin on us. The Bible says God loves us. Here we are, he loves us. But he hates our what? Sin. And the reason God hates your sins, your sins separate you from God. In fact, to go to heaven, you have to be without sin. Heaven's a perfect place. And not one sinner ever in his presence. The problem is we're not without sin. We all have sin on us. And because we sin, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. That means if you pay for your sin, you have to die and go to hell to do it. But the Bible says this. God says, I love you. I hate your sin. I do not want you to pay for it by going to hell. God said, I will provide a substitute. I'll send somebody to pay the debt for you. For God so loved the Lord, let his hand represent Jesus Christ, that he gave his only begotten son. So Jesus Christ came to this earth, he lived a perfect life, and he died on the cross. When he died there, here's what happened. The Bible said he made him to be sin for us. Our sin was laid upon him. He became sin for us, and God the Father punished him for what we did wrong. He died for us. He was buried. And he rose again. And now because of his grace and mercy for you, he said, if you believe when he died, he died for you and trust him as your savior, that you would not perish, but you would have everlasting life. And he look upon you as though if you never sin, that he makes you righteous in his sight. Isn't that wonderful? Now, when I understood that, that didn't make me want to go out and live continuing sin. I have a desire now to live for him because of his wonderful grace and my desire that his grace might reign in my life. How about you? Have you ever received God's grace and mercy? Do you have eternal life? You have. If you have done that, heaven's your home. But that grace now doesn't give you a license to sin, my friend. It teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and teaches that we should live what? Soberly, Righteously and godly in his presence. Well, that's what grace does. Let's bow together, please. As our heads are bowed and eyes are closed, we conclude our service. This morning I've been speaking to those of you that know Christ to help you understand and appreciate God's wonderful grace, marvelous grace. When you understand it rightly from God's word, it would not give you a license or liberty or desire to continue in your sin, but as a believer now to live for him and honor him and please him. 
Henceforth, not to live unto yourselves, but unto him that died for you. And I encourage you to focus on his marvelous grace and now purpose to honor him and please him because of that grace. But if you're here today and you've never experienced God's grace and forgiveness, my friend, you can do that now. You can have God's redemption, his forgiveness, according to the riches of his grace. If you'd realize when Christ died, he died for you, my friend. He paid your sin debt, was buried and rose again. And he offers you eternal life as a gift, free to you at the expense of Christ. And when you, by faith, receive Christ as your Savior, by his grace, his undeserved, unmerited favor, he will save you. He'll forgive you, and heaven becomes your home. What a wonderful truth. My friend, have you ever received his grace? Have you ever trusted Christ as your Savior? Why not do it right now? Why not take God's word and trust Jesus to be your Savior? Say, Pastor, I like to do that. If that's your desire, why not tell God that? In your own thoughts, talk to God and maybe say something like this. Just say, dear God of heaven, I acknowledge, I admit that I'm a sinner. And because I've sinned, I've earned, I deserve your punishment. But God, I believe that Jesus, your son, was punished in my place. I believe when he died, he died for me. He died to pay for my sin. And he was buried, and I believe he rose again. And God, realizing I cannot save myself, I'm trusting Christ to save me. I'm trusting him to forgive me and to give me eternal life. I'm trusting Christ, my Savior, right here today. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, my friend, did that make sense to you? Did you pray with me to receive Christ, trust Christ to be your Savior? If you did, according to the Bible, right now, the Bible says heaven's your home. God saves you at the moment you do that. But I like to know if anyone did that today. I like to pray for those that made that decision to receive Christ as Savior and rejoice with you. With heads bowed and eyes are closed, in one moment, I'm going to ask you, if you did that today for the first time, to raise your hand and indicate you did that this morning. Raise your hand does not save you. I want to pray for you. My prayer for you does not save you. It's Christ that saves you when you trust in him. But if you did that today, as heads are bowed and eyes are closed, and that made sense to you, and you prayed with me to receive Christ as Savior, would you just indicate that, but raise your hand so I can pray for you. And we're all, Pastor, here's my hand. I trusted Christ. Would you pray for me this morning? I understood that. I trusted Christ to be my Savior. Would you include me in your closing prayer? And we're all this morning. Father in heaven, I hope that means each one here has made that decision. And Father, when we rightly understand the wonderful grace, the marvelous grace of God, may that lead us, motivate us to serve you, on you, to please you with our lives not to live under ourselves, but under him that died for us and rose again, to help us to live righteously and godly in this present world. Father, that's your desire, and foremost, that should be our desire if we understand God's wonderful grace. In his name we pray, amen.